Scientists love the thrill of the chase. They have this method of working. I'll decide whether my hypothesis is useful or not, not whether it's true or not. From the University of Melbourne, this is Expert Hack, a show about the changing world of work and how industry experts are finding clever solutions to tricky problems. I'm Ali Moore. Today, one scientist says his profession isn't about truth, but utility, and what that can teach you about predicting behaviour. In this episode, Gay Alcorn speaks with former Chief Scientist of Australia, Professor Robin Batterham, currently the Curnow Professor of Engineering at the University of Melbourne, and Dr Cathy Foley, Deputy Director at CSIRO. Gay began the discussion by asking Robin about the varied skill sets scientists need and how they've changed over time. You do need a skill set which is a lot more than science. But I would emphasise that by studying science and by coming out with a good degree in science, you understand the basics of virtually everything. And you use that through your whole life, whether you're practising to further science or whether you're applying it. Doesn't matter what comes up, you've got the basics. You can understand the world around you. And that's an incredibly powerful position to be in. Yeah, I I agree. Actually, in fact, I want to add to that. I think scientists have always been um, able to do this. It's just that we didn't realise we had the ability to do it. Uh, the training to be a scientist and to be a successful scientist, you actually innately have to have those those skills anyway because it's not as though funding gets served up to you on a golden platter and that you, uh, you know, just sit there and say, I'm a scientist and give me funding because I'm really smart. It's, it's actually more about how you understand how the system works and how to make sure you are able to put competitive world-class proposals forward to usually in the past funding bodies and also to some extent work the room at conferences to be able to get people to agree with your your science ideas. So in some ways the expectations of the modern researcher these days is actually taking it outside the laboratory and taking those same skills further. And I, I, I actually think that if you look around, many of the scientists who didn't realise they, they had those skills are really jumping into this new opportunity with both feet and doing really, really well at it because actually it's been part of the scientific training. It's just we didn't realise it was useful further afield. We, we hear a lot about scientists working closely with industry to bring products or services to market. There's nothing really new in that idea. But I wonder, is it especially important right now and how Australia is placed with it? Let's think of it two ways, a linear model and a parallel model. Now, a linear model, we all know, we know the comic uh, cartoon strip of a, a little light bulb comes up on top of somebody, generally wearing a white lab coat, I might add. Uh, they invent something, they take it to the world, and the world is a better place for it. And if they're lucky, uh, they make quite a bit of money out of it. And that's the invent, develop, commercialise uh, type route. I call that one the linear route. There's another route, which is totally in parallel, which involves the same skills set, the same uh, necessary uh, innovation and jump forward. And that's when you look at something which is already happening, uh, perhaps a co- uh, with a company, 
or with a hospital, with uh, some public service, uh, something which is there and existing. And you decide that you can see how to make it better. This is called innovation. And this often goes on uh, in parallel. It's not invention. It's about changing something in the marketplace so that it has impact and so that we're all uh, better off. Now, it turns out that scientists are remarkably well-placed to do this parallel work, this innovation, being out in the wider community because they have such a breadth of knowledge and because they can be embedded in it and because they understand the basics, that helps you to de-risk innovation. And so I see a lot of opportunity, but I do see that because it's always path-dependent, there's nothing like experience to get you even further along the path. So, Cathy, can you give us some examples of some innovative, exciting collaborations going on right now, whether the CSI are working on it or elsewhere? So we've got something at the moment which is really interesting. It's called Future Science Platforms. And this is one where uh, what we've done is look to the future and say, what is the world going to be like? What do we want it to be like by 2030? And what are the issues that need to be solved where there's a really a real need for technology solutions? And I'll give you a little example. Water pipes in Australia are getting on to being 150 years old. The water authorities want to replace them and there are billions of dollars worth of um, infrastructure that needs to be replaced. Water authorities would like to see smart pipes put in place, except that uh, they, they want to have ones which are self-healing, that have embedded sensing that are able to do smart things such as look at where pollutants are coming from and being able to track them down or where people are using explosives or or even getting to a point where you can have an understanding of um, health in, in a particular area by just looking at what's being flushed down through the sewers. If you go through saying, can we have a smart pipe with all those capabilities, which are very interdisciplinary, can we make those? Well, you talk to pipe manufacturers and they say, we make pipes. So what we're doing at the moment is pulling together what's in existence, because some of those things exist now, what needs to be invented and the new science to you know, make this happen. And, uh, and it's bringing together robotics, informatics, sensors, autonomous systems, data, all those sorts of things in order to make this happen and look at a long-term view. So you're bringing, in this case, um, government authorities, manufacturers and researchers, not just in, in CSRO where I'm at, but also with universities, because we have to remember that uh, we're only a small part ever of, and a fraction of the research that's happening in the world. And often a solution comes from going to the best and the greatest ideas. And so you bring, you know, sort of Team Australia or even Team World together. And that's that's sort of one of the approaches we're doing at the moment. And Robin, what are the most exciting collaborations you're involved with or you're, oh, you're witnessing? I think I'd backtrack and say, uh, Cathy, this is uh, getting pretty close up and personal because um, I live in a uh, house that was built in uh, about 1880, 1882, I think. And the water main outside, I'm sure, has been replaced once or twice, but it's old enough to have burst and flooded my basement. So roll on the smart pipes. Thank you very much. But this whole question of collaboration is interesting. If I look at innovation and stand back and look at how it's uh, changing and then what are the opportunities uh, for Australia, it's undoubtedly about collaboration. And as you put it, it's about uh, breaking down uh, silos. I think it's more than about breaking down silos. It's about blowing them up. Uh, I've just spent an interesting uh, few days um, uh, working with Honeywell uh, in Shanghai. And uh, we think of them as an instrumentation company, but uh, they're a long way from that. 
ad. This is not a free ad for them. But what I want to point out is that they've got a new way of running their open innovation. It's what I would call connected innovation. Open innovation is where, Kathy, as you describe, um, you take a problem to the world's best and you work with them and you knock it over and you collaborate uh, with them rather than saying, I'm going to do this all in-house and I'm going to lock up the IP because I'm going to make a fortune from it. That doesn't work. Good luck to you uh, if that's your sort of view of the uh, world coming up. Do the sums. About 2% of research institutions' income globally comes from what I'd call the mega invention. I'm not arguing against the mega invention. So 98% comes from more open uh, innovation. And when you get people who are into innovation collaborating together such that they're connected. They don't just feed off each other's ideas. They feed off each other's experiences and the problems that people are working on, and they cross-pollinate. They cross-work with each other. We know in Australia we've got far too few young people, particularly women, studying science, technology, engineering and mathematics, so-called STEM subjects. Are we tackling this seriously enough? We, we hear a lot about it, but have we really got to the to the nub of this issue? Can I jump in there? Because it's something I've been really passionate about for a very long time. It's, uh, uh, I, I've actually worked for CSRO for far too many years. It's, I'm coming up to my 33rd year at CSRO. I love working for the organisation and it's, I love its mission. But the whole time I've been working in the organisation, I've really been looking at the fact that uh, Australia and the world is actually not embracing the full human potential by making sure that we you know, really use the the best brains or making sure that we're using everything we've got. And, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers of um, girls in high school doing two sciences and a mathematics, which is usually an indicator that they'll do a technology course after they leave high school, is dropping at an alarming rate. In fact, it's dropping at such a rate that if you were had a simplistic model, it would be zero within 10 years <laughs> and it's uh, because it's dropping so fast. So part of the issue is uh, why are kids choosing subjects that are um, really not leading into technologies. And there's a couple of reasons. One is to do with GDP of the country. And there's some really interesting research that was done by Rose and Rose. And they went through looking at survey of children's interests in science and technology against GDP. And it's an absolute linear response. The lower the GDP, the higher the interest in technology. And, and science, while as you get higher in GDP, it absolutely drops away because you think you can buy it from the shop. Why do you need to worry about it? It's a bit like kids not knowing that milk actually comes from a cow, not a refrigerator. Then the other thing is the way our schools are set up at the moment is all about, you know, league tables, you know, getting the highest final year mark and being encouraged to drop maths and science because they're tricky subjects and actually just do the ones you're passionate about or that you like to do so that you're able to go through and um, get your best score. I look at this and say the broad education really does set you up well for coping with the world, for enjoying it, I might add, for contributing it uh, and so on. So the question then comes down to the specific, uh, how do you go about that? And I would say uh, here's uh, three things, uh, all of them somewhat uh, radical. One, do away with year 12 exams. Do away with them. Bang. Now, the next one is to turn around and say, actually, in terms of learning, experiential learning is the way to go. Yet, 
the time pressure to cover the amount of material that it's seen fit to uh, teach in the uh, Australian syllabus is such that far too much of our learning is um, uh, didactic. By that I mean it starts with somebody espousing, or you read it yourself, a, a principle. You then look at uh, some of the uh, potential uh, outcomes of that and the applications of it, and then you might get down to examples. Whereas experiential learning is to say, oh, well, you know, let's see if we can discover what uh, is XYZ. And so you get into XYZ, you play around with it, uh, you share experience uh, with your other uh, students and so forth, and eventually you uh, sort of stumble across the fact, some faster, some slower than uh, others, that actually there's a principle at work uh, here, thank you very much. Now, I can assure you that learning a principle like that is far more effective in terms of uh, your ability to understand it, to grasp it, to then apply apply it further than learning a theorem and then some applications of it and then moving on to examples. So you're talking about university learning I'm here talking, or still at school? I'm talking about from year one onwards. We are far too didactic in our approach mm-hmm. to squash more and more in as opposed to saying all learning should be experiential. That's a bit extreme, by the way, but um, uh, I start with that position and say, tell me why not? Because from a neuroscience point of view, from how you embed knowledge and from how people use it, experiential learning um, beats uh, uh, beats everything else. But you've got to surrender some of the content that we currently go through. So now you come to my third point, which is to say, well, just what should we be covering in this more expansive uh, sort of education? And on that, I'm very, very clear. At least two languages, your mother tongue plus one more. I really don't care what it is. At least something heading towards, dare I call it, the fine arts end of town. Uh, And I don't care whether it's, um, well, I do a little bit, um, uh, whether it's learning a music uh, instrument, um, whether it's uh, throwing a brush around, um, whether it's understanding the history of some of the great people that have gone before us uh, in that area. Something on economics I regard as absolutely compulsory. And then finally, what triggered this, your question, (laughs) I would also say you've got to have in this more liberal uh, education science literacy. Okay. It just sets you up for life. We need to make sure that we are teaching our students at university to be able to learn and to think and to assess and evaluate because it's those things that really allow them to not just take their education to a point where it's a training. And I think there's an awful lot of training going on. So I think if we're able to have universities which are truly universities in the sense of universal thinking, universal teaching, I think that's where the the um, future is, and I I know that um, um, Melbourne's done the university with its its you know changing the structure of um, of subjects when you first go in and having that basic learning and then specialising later on. That sort of thing is probably on the right track. Given that we're in this world of of opinion and even a post truth world as it's called, is there a special role for scientists to play in this? I think scientists have got a special role to play here in this so-called uh, post-truth world. Uh, just as long as they don't brand it uh, false or fake news uh, or some such. My point would be that scientists love the thrill of the chase. They love worrying about and thinking about what makes things tick. So they have this paradigm. They have this method of working which says, I'll think about 
what I reckon is the reason behind this. I'll try a bit of an experiment or I'll observe um, because nature makes experiments, uh, of course, around us, including in the social uh, sciences. And then on the basis of that, I'll decide whether my hypothesis is useful or not, not whether it's true or not. Science isn't about truth. It is at the end of the day about utility. So that's actually something extraordinarily useful in a so-called post-truth world because it says if you operate as a leader with your scientific training, where you say, I'll try a hypothesis and I'll see how well it works. And by gee, if it does work, I've got a predictor of behavior and I can base my leadership um, on predictions as well as observations of the past. That's pretty useful. Kathy. Yes. So, um, well, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, is a PhD in physics. And (laughs) I I think she is someone who uh, really has shown the you know, sort of a steady hand during you know the global financial crisis, during uh, the issues relating to uh, Syrian refugees and that sort of stuff, and being a real leader in the European Union during the pretty difficult times. I uh, I actually think that sometimes her her ability to see through the problems and not be thrown by the media and the you know, public opinion has been because of her ability to see things through in a way which is you know, as Robin just pointed out they're, they're seeing things through thinking things through and I think there's a real opportunity there. I think uh, Australia would be for the better if um, if we actually had a, a strong diversity of views in government, as we know in the public service that happens already. And it would be fantastic if we saw uh, more scientists and engineers putting their hands up to uh, really look at um, how they can use their skills in the in the public domain. And so I think that would be fantastic. If you enjoyed this discussion, you'll enjoy the next episode in the series, looking at what engineers can teach you about harnessing your personality to build better relationships. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or in your favourite podcast app. Expert Hack is a podcast from the University of Melbourne, where the Melbourne model is preparing students for the world beyond their degree. Learn more at unimelb.edu.au slash experthack.